public park in Seville, Spain. It was the 1950s. Two men shake hands, both Irish. One tall, broad-shouldered. Paddy O'Connell. The other smaller, fragile. Dan, Paddy's son. When Dan was a child, his father, Patrick, had run out on the family. He left Dan's mother alone with four children. Dan was always curious about his missing father. And years later, he decided to track him down to Seville. They met every day, only in the park. Dan had to pretend that he was not the son. He had to pretend he was a nephew. The meetings in the park were secret because Paddy O'Connell had told no one in Spain about his Irish family, not least his other wife here in Seville. But those meetings in the park with his estranged son were to mark the end of the good life for Paddy O'Connell. And it had been good. Whatever about his betrayal of his family and his wives, Paddy O'Connell was loyal to football. Paddy O'Connell's legacy to world soccer is remarkable. He's credited with saving one of the most important and spectacular teams in the game. FC Barcelona, Barca. I'm here at the Camp Nou Stadium in Barcelona. It's a few minutes before Barca plays Real Madrid in El Clasico. Um, beside me is Sid Lowe, the Guardian's football correspondent in Spain. Sid, when Patrick O'Connell came to this city 80 years ago to manage Barca, do you think he had any idea how big this fixture would become? I don't think he could ever have imagined anything like this. There's absolutely no way that he would have imagined that they would have become as big as this, that this fixture would have been quite so huge, watched all around the world. And, of course, part of this is, is owed to him because of his role during the Spanish Civil War in, in rescuing Barcelona, in, in helping them to become the club they were. And, and I think when you... When you look back at the, the enormous contribution that he made to football, this perhaps is the, the best legacy he could have possibly left. Fantastic. Uh, with Messi and Ronaldo on the pitch, we're probably in for a goal or two tonight. Despite his impact on world soccer, Paddy's story was forgotten for years. Now, in his memory, there's fundraising and ballad singing. He was born in Old Ireland in March 87 Scarce knowing the troubles that fate held in store For ere he did grace the smooth pitches of heaven He found lasting fame on a faraway shore Paddy O'Connell grew up on this street in the north side of Dublin this is 87 Fitzroy Avenue, this is where Patrick was married. Fitzroy Avenue is a street you've seen, it's like uh, something off Coronation Street. Small terraced houses, so they would have been not professional people, definitely. It's like any other street with red bricked houses, except that Croke Park is looming over it like a spaceship had just landed. It's incredible, the stadium is right there at the end of the street. Yeah. So it's probably no surprise he ended up as a sports star. He grew up here in the shadow of Croke Park. And another clue to his future as a leader of men 
is that he joined his dad at Boland's Mills at 14 years of age and by 15 he was already a foreman. Oh, Patrick's a history maker, he's a man of force. This is Fergus Dowd, he's a campaigner for Paddy's memory. He's the first Irish man to captain Manchester United in 1915. He was part of the first Irish team to beat England on English soil. Um, he's also the first Irish man to win La Liga. The sad thing about this is that not a lot of people know this story. I mean, you could ask 10 people walking up the street here, who's Patrick O'Connell? You've no never, idea. never heard of Paddy O'Connell? No, I've never heard of him, no. Famous footballer. He was, uh, lived in number 87, Fitzroy Avenue. 87? Mm. And I live in number 8, yeah, just there. And how long have you lived on the street? Since I was very young. The two soundtracks to Paddy's life were already right there on Fitzroy Avenue. The cheering from Croke Park. Supporters will be the sound of his professional life. But just behind the house runs a railway line. The Dublin Sligo line. The train will be a soundtrack to his personal life. He's buried near a railway line. He abandoned his family at a station. In Spain, on the trains, he felt fear and excitement. We have no writing from Paddy or personal interviews, so we have to imagine his train thoughts. We have to imagine him lying in bed as a teenager, listening to the trains behind the house and thinking about his future. His love for this new sport of soccer, whether he could actually make a living from it. If the train and soccer would take him to faraway places, like Manchester. Where his grandson, Mike, still lives. Hello, Hello Richard. Lovely to nice meet you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. We've been looking forward to you coming. <laughs> Thanks a million. Great to be here. Do you know you come at any appropriate time? It's almost exactly 100 years ago that my grandfather, Patrick, was made captain of Manchester United. Ah, right. And there's right. Sue over there. Hiya, Sue. Lovely to meet you. Hello. Nice <laughs> to meet you, Richard. Uh, thanks a million for taking the time to meet. Not Sue is Mike's wife. She's writing a book about Paddy O'Connell. Uh, I feel I almost know him, although I've met him. Sue married me, but is in love with my grandfather. <laughs> He's the other man in my life, Mike says. It's the other, he's the other man in my life. I find him infinitely fascinating. Sue is not the first woman to find Paddy O'Connell fascinating. In fact, Paddy's story isn't just about football. It's also about his relationship with women. For example, Paddy left Boland's Mills to head north to play football for Belfast Celtic. But apparently, football mightn't have been his only reason... He got married rather precipitously and they went off to, to Belfast, which I think was quite convenient. It was convenient because five months after they got married, their first baby was born. They were f fortunately in Belfast yeah. and my father, their eldest son, was born. <laughs> Imagine Paddy's train thoughts on the way to Belfast with his new bride, Ellen Treston. 
He had got this young woman pregnant and they weren't married. They got married and were going to have the baby away from the busybodies counting the months since the wedding. Maybe they wouldn't have married if Ellen hadn't become pregnant. She was very different from Paddy. The young woman he'd married came from a very well-off middle-class family who led a bohemian lifestyle. And she's supposed to have had two aunts who were the first women to ride bicycles west of the Shannon. Now, it would have meant that they were free to do this and had enough money to buy bicycles. My mother talked of films in those days. She talked about her favourite actor, who was naturally Rudolf Valentino. This is Ellen and Paddy's son, Dan. Now, her favourite film was something called Mad Love. Unfortunately, that was her own life story as well. And anyway, we got scholarships, and one of my sisters got a scholarship to a decent school, mm. and it was a Protestant school, and the priest came and asked my mother, would she not send her a Catholic one? And my mother's reply was, listen, Father... I have no objection to God. It's just the buggers he has working for him. I grew up with her, and she was uh, an atheist from a Catholic family, anti-royal family, left-wing in politics, and encouraged all her four children to take an interest in the arts. Patrick himself, he appears to have been a rather solid person, careful with money. But the woman he married spent money like water, even when she had none. But for the time being, money wasn't a problem. Paddy's football career had taken off. He captained Ireland in 1914, even playing against Scotland with a broken arm. He and the family had moved to England, where Paddy played for Sheffield Wednesday and Hull City. He was playing with Hull City when Manchester United came calling. It was the summer of 1914, and while the rest of the world was sliding towards war, things were looking up for Paddy O'Connell. He was signed by Manchester United for £1,000. £1,000 was a large sum. I mean, he was effectively a defender. Mark Wiley, the curator at Manchester United's museum. Manchester United was trying to build up a new team and £1,000 bought them one of the better defenders in the Football League at the time. He was well-respected from his play at uh, Hull City. He was an Irish international, so he was a significant player. £1,000, and Manchester United could only pay it in instalments. Right. To, to put that in perspective, that would be he was the Luis Suarez of his day going to Barcelona <laughs> for £70 million or something. Yeah. That was That's right. But as soon as Paddy got lucky, he got unlucky again. Unfortunately, before he'd got a chance to play a competitive match, war broke out, and that one season, one competitive football league season that he played at the club was the only one he played here. So I'm wondering whether there's been a fallout between the club and O'Connell later on in the war. If there was a fallout, it could have been over money 
or lingering bad feeling over a scandal that happened in April 1915. It was a conspiracy by players from both Liverpool and Manchester United to make money because it was becoming increasingly clear that with the war carrying on, they were not going to be able to earn money by playing football for 1915-16 season. So what some players decided to do was make some money by rigging a game. Uh, was O'Connell in on the fix? That's a very good question. Nobody knows. There's an inquiry held and it was all very formal. Not only was there an inquiry, there was two court cases in which Patrick was called to appear as a witness. And he made them laugh. And I think that really helped him. And I can recall asking Patrick's wife, my gran, was grandfather involved? All I got was a rather shifty answer. She didn't say yes, she didn't say no. I'm certain he was involved. Because later, when he went to Spain, there were similar matches that were fixed that he seems to have been involved with, so I'm damn sure he was involved in it. Even though there was a war on, life in Manchester seemed to be good. The marriage appeared to be OK. His wife was very proud of him and thought him very handsome and attractive. And as well as football, Patrick also had a factory job. He was working in the Ford factory at Trafford Park and they were building motor ambulances, trucks, vans, all sorts of things there. And he was allowed to bring the car home. And he was like the Pied Piper. He brought the car home one Saturday morning and it was filled with 20 kids going down this working-class yeah, street. he drove up and down the and street. And 100 kids, 100 kids in the street because they hadn't seen anybody in a car. Patrick O'Connell, accomplished defender United's first captain from Erin's Greenland His playing days over, he kept his agenda And his management skills made him much in demand After the end of the First World War, Patrick O'Connell's playing career petered out. He spent a year in Scotland and a couple of seasons in the north of England as a player-manager. However, on these occasions, he didn't bring his family with him. He left them behind in Manchester. It soon became clear that as well as chasing football work, he was running away from his wife and four children. Ellen, unsuccessfully, tried to get him to come back. And her last meeting with him was on the railway station at Newcastle. That's quite tragic. A very sad, tragic meeting. And little Daniel with her. I was only four when he left my mother, and he left her with four children and no money. This is Daniel. He was speaking on RT Radio in 1991. He was a notable director and producer on radio. That's one reason why I dislike football, because he left us completely, and... Uh, we never had, we never certain of what money we'd have. We owed rent all the time. My mother actually, one time she's doing this cleaning, someone reported her that she was getting social insurance of seven and six a week and a man came and said it was dismissed and that was finished. That loss of seven and six was like the end of the world for us. Yeah. I can remember it to this day. Uh, he headed to Spain to coach racing Santander. As Ireland imploded in fair civil war The Cantabrians took to the wayward Irelander 
As for seven long years he kept them to the fore. Imagine Patrick's train thoughts on the way to Spain. It was 1922, his home country, Ireland, was brand new. He was 35 and starting on a new chapter himself. The old chapter of his personal life was closed, his wife and four children abandoned. The new chapter was opening, but how? There was a family rumour years later that Patrick wasn't alone on that train, that he had a Scottish woman with him, who people assumed was his wife. Complicated. The professional chapter that was opening up was less so. The timing of someone from British football moving to Spain in the early 1920s was perfect. I think the significance really in terms of Patrick O'Connell coming to Spain and indeed other British managers was that sense that this was a British game, that although it was a game... This is Sid Lowe. He's a historian as well as a correspondent for the Guardian newspaper covering Spanish football. It was still seen as a British game in which the British knew best. You can see it in the names of the football teams, for example, Racing Santander, Rathing Santander, Athletic Club of Bilbao and so on. Hi, I'm uh, Fergus Dowd from the Patrick O'Connell Memorial Fund. Uh, we're here in Sheffield um, at a luncheon for Patrick O'Connell. Yeah, my name is Alan McLean. I'm one of the uh, three founder members of the Patrick O'Connell Memorial Fund. What's the most curious aspect about this whole saga? W- without doubt for me, it's moving from the northeast of England to Spain and immediately becoming a very successful coach. Within no time at all, he had managed Real Abiedo, Racing Santander, Real Betis, Barcelona, to many, many championship wins and cup wins from a a standing start, really. What would his status have been at a club? Well, to some extent, we we go back to the idea of him being a prophet. The manager of the club is is the manager, is, he is the man, he is the one that tells you what to do, that tells you how to do it, who, who is trusted absolutely, is, is seen as almost infallible. That style of leadership suited Paddy O'Connell. His grandson Mike remembers several stories from old Spanish footballers. We met a very old player who had been the right winger for Spain and he was as famous in Spain as Stanley Matthews or Rooney. And he was known as El Stuka. And El Stuka told us this story. Grandfather smoked like a chimney, a chain smoker. And this is a bit remarkable for his day. He forbid his players to smoke. And one day, walking round the ground, grandfather caught El Stuka. Think of Stanley Matthews. He found El Stuka smoking behind the stands. And El Stuka did not get a game in the first team for three weeks. Could you imagine Rooney not getting a game for three weeks because they were found smoking by a chain smoker? <laughs> he had to maintain double standards given, given his position. As it turned out, Paddy O'Connell was pretty good at maintaining double standards. He got regular letters from his brother in London telling him about Ellen and the children back home. But he had a new Ellen to think about. 
Ellen O'Callaghan came from Middleton in Cork. She trained as a teacher, moved to England and eventually ended up in Spain working for diplomats and well-to-do families as a governess. One day, she brought one little boy she was minding along to a football ground for a coaching session. Paddy O'Connell was there, tall, wearing his trademark trilby, protecting his bald head from the Spanish sun. Paddy and Ellen started to chat. He told her that he had been married but that his wife had died. Strange as it may seem, that may not have been entirely untrue because later Ellen told her family in Cork that when Paddy O'Connell arrived in Spain, he came with a Scottish wife, a woman who subsequently died. Paddy and Ellen began a relationship and got married. Although Ellen O'Callaghan was ten years younger than him, she was a good match for Paddy. As a football manager, his life was precarious and money was never guaranteed. Ellen worked hard and consistently and made and saved good money. If you're going to commit a bigamy, the best thing to do is marry a second woman with the same name. She was an educated, well-read woman, but there was something curious about the fact that she ended up with Paddy. She was petite, with black hair and quite beautiful. And amazingly, she looked identical to the first wife. What was it like for a guy from Dublin, living in the north of England, to move to a southern European country? Culturally, it was a Catholic country, probably not a whole lot different than Ireland. A rural country. This is Brendan Grant. He's a filmmaker from County Tipperary, who's lived in Barcelona for the last eight years. Hola. Um, here I must uh, well, yo quiero café con leche descafeinada. I've asked him to imagine what it was like for Paddy arriving there. For example, the strange food. I actually think there was probably less of a difference for him back in the 20s than there is for us now. Because in Ireland we have sort of a refined diet where we don't eat a lot of the animal. That Sort of in my grandmother's day, I remember, you go around to her house and there'd be an old pig's head on the table. And that to us was sort of barbaric. We didn't have that in our house. Whereas here in Spain, it's actually more like that. You have pig's ears, pig's heads, lips noses, the whole lot, they eat the whole lot here and I think at that time they did too. Um, are there any uh, behavioural aspects to the Spanish that struck you when you, when you moved here? One, one thing that jumped out at me was that they're, they're loud like an, an abrasive. There's a lot more talk here. For instance, when you play football, you could spend 10 minutes arguing with someone, whereas in Ireland it would descend into fisticuffs a lot quicker. You'd see things here where you assume it'll turn into a fight, but eventually they all just quieten down. So they, they seem to get a lot out of their uh, anger and annoyance out verbally rather than physically, which I think is to be admired. What he really liked was cafe life and red wine. And most people who like cafe life are, are people who like talking and have got a bit about them. 
Paddy O'Connell, star football manager, might have liked talking, and he certainly had a bit about him. But the one thing he didn't mention in Spain was that he had a wife and four children back in England. Do you think it's possible that Ellen married Paddy but never knew that he was married beforehand and had a family in, in Manchester? I suspect she never knew. Because what we do know about her was that she was a very devout Catholic who, who would go to church every night. And I don't think she's the kind of person who could have took it if she'd known that she was bigamously married. But in 1930s Spain, having two wives was not just an issue of private morality. Sexual behaviour had become a public issue, part of the rising tensions between left-wing Republicans and Franco's right-wing nationalists. One of the kind of recurring themes of nationalist propaganda was that these terrible Reds do all these terrible things. Sidlow, historian. Like killing nuns and being left-wing and collectivising businesses and stuff. But one of the phrases you hear a lot is, and we hear them chanting, families know free love, yes. And there was this kind of terrified idea that they might subvert Catholic mores, this terrified idea that they, they might be somehow sexually open or aware that, that rigid family hierarchies can be broken down. And there's no doubt that when you see the discourse of the right in the 1930s, even before the Civil War, the political right, it is focused on family and family as being patriarchal but with a strong mother figure as well. Paddy's family back in England were still suffering without him. He continued to get letters from his brother telling about them, but he didn't write back. He did, however, send money, and in this way his son Dan at least knew what country his father was in. Sometimes he'd send a few thousand pesetas. It was the first foreign money I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. Mother would take me into town with him. We'd go to Cook's and change these pesetas into ordinary cash. He had a few international caps. He was a very good player. These were a velvet thing, and I remember they had kind of metal golden tassels on them. But uh, my mother used to use these <laughs> international caps to lift the hot kettle off the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic um, finish. It's amazing. That's uh, 101 years old. And on the front it says 1913-1914. Um, so this would have been the cap he was awarded for the home international championship in 1914, which yeah. they won. Yeah. It's velvet, I guess. Mm. And what colour is that? Navy? And it's difficult to see. Or a very dark green, I'm not sure. Or, yeah, these might have been gold, maybe the tassels originally. Or, yeah, yeah. That's the timeline of it. Oh, right, OK. As well as memorabilia, Mike's wife Sue has research material gathered for the book she's writing about Paddy's life. Real Oviedo, back at Racing. These include a wall chart listing all the clubs Paddy managed in Spain. Then Barca, 35 all the way to 39. Those dates, 1935 to 39, were of course significant in Spanish history. They cover the period of the Spanish Civil War. Barcelona was particularly badly hit. When war broke out, the anarchists took over. All over the city, churches were sacked and burned. In the last week of July 1936 alone, 160 priests and nuns were arrested and shot, their bodies left on the outskirts of the city. Overhead, 
German Stukas rained bombs on Barcelona. As it happened, Paddy O'Connell was out of the country when the war broke out. Barca told him that he wasn't obliged to come back to Spain while the war was on, but incredibly, he decided to return anyway. It's very difficult to to get your head around, isn't it? Um, because the sensible course of action is to keep well out of it. Sidlo, historian. Now, the, the personality traits of managers, I would imagine, haven't really changed a huge amount. And I think in a lot of cases, these are people who, who love the sport, for whom the sport gives meaning to their lives. And I think for certainly, perhaps more so back then even than now, because now, of course, there's an economic reason for doing it. O'Connell wouldn't have been well paid, or not, not especially well paid. There would have been status and he would have been comfortable and so on. But I, I suspect it was really, really just what he did. Uh, and it, it sounds like a stupidly simplistic answer, but I think managing football teams is what he did. It's what moved him, what excited him, what interested him, playing, watching games, working with players, being involved in an activity that always represented who he considered himself to be. Even now, that you know, you talk to some football managers now, and why did they become a manager? Because they didn't want to get out of the game. They played and they didn't want to get out of the game, and it'll never be the same to them as playing. But I think there's a very simple human need for some of these guys to remain involved in the sport. Imagine Paddy's train thoughts on the way back to Spain. He was travelling into a war zone, but maybe life was less stressful there. He had been back home, where someone might point out that Ellen O'Callaghan wasn't the Ellen he had married in Dublin. It could only be a matter of time before he was found out. When civil war broke, he was home on vacation. But he hurried to Spain to be there with his side. And they triumphed again to immense adulation. Despite all the horrors washed upon the tide. Of course, Paddy's club, Barca, didn't escape the crisis. Their president, the man who had signed Paddy, was murdered by fascists. The club was in financial trouble, the Spanish League had been suspended, membership fees plummeted, and it was dangerous. When O'Connell and the team travelled to play regional matches, they went by train at night with the lights out to avoid bombardment by Franco's warships stationed at sea. By March 1937, Barca was in serious financial difficulty. The following month, however, bread landed from heaven when the club was offered the chance to go to Mexico and the United States for a series of lucrative friendlies. This trip would save Barca. But there were problems. They were all set to travel when the physio pulled out. They couldn't go without a physio. Not to be thwarted, though, Paddy O'Connell came up with a plan. This is Angel Moore. His father was a groundsman at the club at the time. One day, Paddy O'Connell came up and spoke to him. Angel's father thought he was going to complain about the state of the pitch. Instead, Paddy told him that he was going to the Americas as the team physio. 
claro, pues mi padre dijo, hombre, yo... No, I'm not qualified. Claro, Don't worry, said O'Connor. Me and the players will help you. No te preocupes. En dos Most of it was done with hot water. De aquella época se curaba todo con baños calientes, o sea que, que no había muchos problemas. ¿eh? So the groundsman joined the squad with a borrowed suit, a borrowed suitcase, and a stack of anatomy books that Paddy had given him. The tour to the Americas lasted four months. It did short-term damage to FC Barcelona in that, out of the original 16 players who went, only four came back to Spain. However, the tour was a long-term success because Paddy and the squad brought back enough money to save Barca. The tour to the Americas coincided with a personal tragedy. When Paddy went on tour, Ellen stayed behind. She was pregnant. But while being evacuated during fighting, she lost the child. They never had any children together. However, a child from Paddy's first family, Dan, was always curious about his missing father. And years later, he decided to track him down. He knew his father might be somewhere in Spain, but didn't know where exactly. Dan was living in Dublin when the Spanish football team came to play an international friendly. He went to a pub where he knew the Spanish team were drinking. He went up to some of the players and asked if they knew of a Patrick O'Connell, a soccer manager. Of course, everyone knew him. He was famous in Spain as Don Patricio. The players directed him to Seville. Paddy was indeed in Seville in the 1950s. He had retired from football management and he was living with Ellen O'Callaghan. Dan decided to head to Seville for a reunion with his father. And it was arranged between him and his father they would meet in Seville. Mike, Paddy's grandson. They met every day in a park in Seville, only in the park. And Dan, think of Dan as this rather, um, how would you describe him? Arty. Rather arty. A gentle, fragile, small person meeting up with this big, handsome ex-footballer. When they met, all grandfather could talk about was football and Dan, Daniel, couldn't see any sense in 22 grown men kicking a lump of leather around a field. But Daniel, Dan, had to pretend that he was... Not the son. He had to pretend he was a nephew. Patrick doesn't seem to have asked about his other children. Sue, Mike's wife. You might not have wanted to know about his wife because that was all just too complicated for him, but he didn't ask about his other children. But one, what he did ask... Oh, was, statement, this. Yeah. The first thing he said was... How was Manchester United getting on? That must have been hurtful for Dan, but his visit was also disastrous for Paddy. 
Shortly afterwards, his marriage to Ellen O'Callaghan broke up. Her family in Cork don't want to be interviewed, but they told us they believe that the breakup happened because of Dan's visit to Seville. They think that somehow, during the visit, Ellen found out about Paddy's secret, his first marriage and children. Ellen immediately cut off all ties with Paddy. He then left Spain and returned to England alone. And Patrick went to Argyle Street in central and with his brother. It was 1959, Paddy was 71 and a pauper. He was claiming national assistance, it was that uh, yeah. difficult for him. It wasn't long before Patrick got pneumonia and died. What did Patrick leave behind? When... Five pounds, a gold watch, I presume it was gold, and very little else. Paddy's two wives, the ones we know of, the two Ellens, both outlived him by decades. Ellen Treston died at 97. Ellen O'Callaghan died at 98. Ellen O'Callaghan, Paddy's wife in Spain, is buried back in Middleton County, Cork. Despite how it ended, her headstone carries her married name, his surname, O'Connell. Paddy's buried in Kensal Green in London, and on his headstone, he has none. He's in an unmarked grave beside a railway line. The train, the soundtrack to his personal life, goes on. But the soundtrack to his professional life goes on too. The football crowds are still applauding. The Patrick O'Connell Memorial Fund is raising money for a headstone on his grave. They go around making presentations at various football events, like this match, featuring one of Paddy O'Connell's old clubs, Sheffield Wednesday. Welcome back to the News at One. A plaque has been unveiled in Dublin to the late, great footballer Patrick O'Connell among Patrick's achievements. Uh, my name is Alan McLean. I'm a representative of the Patrick O'Connell Memorial Fund. And it's a great pleasure of mine to invite you to witness today this uh, wonderful unveiling here in Fitzroy Avenue, and in particular, number 87, the former home of uh, Patrick O'Connell. What do you think was going through Patrick's head all those years in Spain, you know, about his family back in, back in England? It's something I've thought about. Uh, and when I look at his four children, and when I think of myself, none of us ever felt we belonged anywhere. We've no sense of belonging. And I have a feeling that we get that from grandfather. Irish though he was, I don't think he felt he belonged anywhere. In London he passed on both penny and friendless A tired old man with no will to survive 
In the Catalan region his legend is endless As a hero who kept Barcelona 